0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the official RBYA podcast. We hope that whatever content we bring to you, whether it be messages or interviews or whatever else it may be, we hope that it would be edifying, that it would help you grow in maturity and in faith and in, in the knowledge of God. And we also hope that you stick around for any future announcements or updates. We hope you enjoy. Good evening. I'm glad you're here with me. I know it's uh, probably for you a good time to take a nap just because of the rain and all the hail that is around us. This is uh, after a long week of uh, having fun. I hope you had fun. Did you guys enjoy the camp? Praise God. Praise God. And I want to also again thank uh, the RBYA committee just for inviting me for being here this week with you. What a pleasure has been for me. Uh, just to get to know some of you more and uh, be able to open God's Word with you. And um, tonight we're going to talk about biblical womanhood, and I'm hoping that you still have some energy for this, because it is a really good topic. And uh, I hope that you take notes, and also that you probably get the chance to listen again to some of these messages. I know that um, probably I gave you a lot of information, but my hope was that you would look back to... Uh, this message is to your notes, and you'll think and pray through it. Um, before I jump into the text, I was, and as I was preparing for this message on biblical womanhood, I came across something that uh, an author and radio host, Nancy Lee Moss, wrote. And um, she's uh, one of the most prominent evangelical women in the American church probably in the last third, uh, 30 years or so. Uh, she's known for books, for radio. And listen to what she said in one of her books, she said the feminist revolution was supposed to bring women greater fulfillment than freedom. It was supposed to make us feel better about ourselves. But we see the poison fruit of the revolution in the eyes and cries of women who are drowning in the quagmire of serial divorce and remarriage and wayward children. Women who are utterly exhausted from the demands of trying to juggle one or more jobs, function as a single parent, and be active at church. Women who are disoriented and confused. Who lack a sense of mission, vision and purpose for their lives. And who are perpetually, pathetically shrouded in woundedness, self-doubt, resentment and guilt. Now she goes on and says that it should come as, as no, no huge surprise. That the secular world is confused and off base about identity and calling of women. But what I find distressing is the extent to which this feminist revolution has taken hold even within the Christian church. And listen to this last thing, she says. We can see the fruit of their revolution as prominent Christian speakers, authors, and leaders promote an agenda, whether subtly or overtly, that encourages women to define and discover their worth in the workplace, in society, or a church, while minimizing or even at the expense of their distinctive roles in the home as daughters, sisters, wives, and mothers, as bearers and nurturers of life, as caregivers, as those privileged and responsible to shape the heart and the character of the next generation. Now, I'm not sure if you paid attention to everything she said here, but she's primarily saying that women try to find their identity mostly outside of what God intended them to find their identity primary identity, not that you shouldn't be working outside of home, but a calling for a, a woman is primarily to be a nurturer, to be a mother, to be a wife, to be a caretaker, a caregiver. And it's interesting, she says this as a single woman who worked very hard to be professionally very acclaimed. That's even more interesting, that she writes this, as I said, as a single woman who uh, for many decades has been teaching on this topic. Now, um, I want to tell you, she got married actually a few years ago uh, with a guy, name is Bobby, Robert uh, Wolgamuth, and uh, I think she's happily married. But it's interesting how now she looks back to some of the things she wrote and she says, I still stand by what I said. Now, I want to make some clarifications before I even jump into this message because I think it's important. First, I already mentioned in my first two messages in this series or a few messages, that both men and women are created equal in worth, dignity, and value. And I hope that I made that very clear, that there's no inferiority or superiority of genders. Second point I want to make. Because of this truth, I pointed out that Christianity stands against all the abuses that have been perpetuated throughout the centuries against women. And Jesus was the greatest example of valuing and dignifying women in his life and ministry. Actually, whenever Christianity has been promoted or advanced in one area, true Christianity, women are the ones who have actually received rights. We wouldn't have women's rights as we know them if it wasn't for Christianity. And I mention that true Christianity because sometimes in the name of Christianity, many abuses were made. But I'm talking here about true Christianity, okay? Another point that I want to make that I think it's very important. When I speak against feminism, I don't speak against that side of the first wave movement that promotes rights for women to vote or for them to hold property or protect their children from the vicious circuit of child labor in factories or protect themselves from spousal abuse. On the contrary, as a Christian man, I'm called to defend women and protect them and protect their rights. Fourthly, when I speak on this topic, please know that I'm aware that I speak as a man and not as a woman. But please, don't dismiss me because of this fact. Because afterwards, after all, Jesus and Paul were not women. Nevertheless, they gave a lot of exhortations that they are meant to be for all of us, women included. So it's my job to be a messenger of God's Word. And um, I'd like to encourage you to consider that what I share is in line with how the majority of Christianity also has interpreted the scripture, and it still does. And lastly, I'm also aware that some of you have been hurt and suffered tremendously due to men who abuse their position of power or their role as a husband, a father, or a man in authority over you. And I want to tell you that I'm deeply sorry for your hurt. I am. And I want you to know that what they have done is not what the Bible designed and intends for biblical manhood, and womanhood. And also I want to tell you that I share this truth that you're about to hear as a guy who's a father of four girls and a, a man who's married with the sweetest and the kindest woman on planet Earth. So I have an interest in this because I'm teaching my girls about this and I'm also encouraging my wife to think through this. So with this in mind, I want us to just think about a few characteristics of biblical womanhood. First, I want us to think about, again, to Genesis 2, 21 and 22. And if one of you has a Bible, uh, can you maybe read that passage for us? So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord... God had taken from the man, he made it into a woman and brought her to the man. So I wanted to make a point that I made in the past, but I wanted to make it very clear. First point to be feminine is God's idea. To be feminine is God's idea. And the woman was the, the beautiful handiwork of God, our creator. Woman was God's idea. And someone pointed out that the woman was the finishing design of all that God created. She was the last act. God saved the last, the best for the last. What this means is that women shouldn't look to the culture or their feelings to try to find out their feminine identity. Everything that women are and do must be rooted in God's word where we find out God's design for us all. So for all the women out there, let me just tell you that you are not a woman by chance or by accident. I I repeated that all throughout this week. You are made specifically designed by God, knitted and formed in your mother's womb to be who you are today. The implication of this truth is that God made women to be fully feminine creatures. Women don't become women because someone gave them some dolls to play with when they're little. Or they're taught to dress up, how to do dress up. You are feminine because you are created feminine, period. And I emphasize this because there are many today who want to argue for the fact that femininity femininity is a matter of cultural conditioning, something that you are taught to be. And the only difference between men and women, someone says, it's our anatomy, which can be surgically changed, they say. That's nonsense, by the way. What God is pointing out in His Word is that women are innately feminine. Now, granted, a woman can accentuate her femininity, or she can detract from it, but she cannot change it. Some accentuate it, some detract from it, but you cannot change it. Some don't play with dolls, some play with boys' toys, but it doesn't matter, you're they're still feminine. Why is that? Because a woman's sex chromosomes are in every cell of her body. Your femininity is a grace from a loving God. A second point that I want to make on what does it mean to be a biblical woman. Genesis 2.18, you're called to be a helper. You're called to be a helper. Again, not a fixer, but a helper. God made Adam and Eve fellow stewards of creation. But even though they have same worth, dignity, and value, they have different roles. And if you remember a few days ago, I pointed this out, that the woman was created to be a helper. And the word help, helper here translates this word of being a support or aid. And if you feel that that's the meaning, I pointed out that God is the one who calls himself a helper to the people of Israel. He comes alongside. While they're supposed to do what He tells them to do, He comes alongside them. In certain situations, God doesn't take the lead. He's just there to help them. Very interesting. This unique feminine purpose is well defined by known pastor and author, John Piper, in his book, What's the Difference? Manhood and Womanhood Defined According to the Bible. It's a small booklet, but very good. What's the difference? Manhood and Womanhood Defined According to the Bible. And you can find it... On free for free for on desiringgod.org. Here's what he says: At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, to receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy man in ways appropriate to a woman's deferring relationships. Let me read that again: At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, to receive and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's deferring relationships. Now, the key word here is deferring relationships, meaning different relationships. You have different relationships with different men. You have a different relationship with your dad. You have a different relationship with your pastor, different relationship with the guys in the high school group or college group. Author Carolyn Mahaney, who agrees with this definition of John Piper, she points out this key phrase, differing relationships, and she says that women shouldn't express their femininity only in the context of marriage. Even though it looks slightly different for single ladies than married ones, all women are called to display their femininity in a variety of relationships. It's important to mention that this doesn't mean that men shouldn't be allowed to lead women, or should be allowed, excuse me, that men should be allowed to lead women into sin or away from God's priorities. It does mean, though, that women should be inclined to affirm the leadership and initiative of the men around them. Women should be inclined to affirm the leadership and initiative of the men around them. Let me give you an example. If you're a single woman, and if in your life there are single men, that they are are unaware that the fact that they are in a need of a woman don't try to make them aware of that by you taking the lead you see a guy that you probably could help and you try to take or grab his attention you shouldn't be the one pursuing him you should be praying and let him be the one initiating that's one of the con- or the implications of what i just shared that's what we see also in this specific account in Genesis you, you see Adam gets to the point where he realizes that that he is lonely and there's no there's no partner for him and God makes him aware of that and God is the one who comes up with the idea if the Lord has marriage plan for you then you can rest assured that he will provide the right guy for you without you trying to make it happen be at peace with the fact that God is in control of your life and being married is not an epitome of living If you rest in this truth, you'll be freed from the temptation to manipulate, to complain, or to become bitter. So in all your relationships as women, you should be making room for godly men to practice servant leadership. Carolyn Mahaney, again, she's the author of Feminine Appeal, a book that I strongly recommend to you. She says that she would especially encourage single women to ask the Lord to give them creative ways to inspire men to lead. Granted, she says, this is not always easy. And I'm not promising you that all the men will automatically lead. What matters is that you are cultivating the habit of making room for the leadership of the men in your life. Does that make sense? That you're encouraging the guys around you to lead, even when you could do it probably. And the reality is that there are men in your life that the Lord has provided in this season. Fathers, bosses, pastors, friends. And they need to know that you incline toward them to lead. Instead of resisting them in a stiff-necked posture of the heart. So you encourage Men's godly leadership when you seek their counsel before making your own decisions. You respect them when you avoid sinfully complaining to others about their actions or decisions and resist publicly questioning their actions. That's a very interesting thought. That you're not going against the men, especially I'm talking here if you, if you have a dad in your life, I'm talking here about the, the man that you have over you in your, in your life as, as authority, pastors bosses, and if you're not sure how well you're doing in this area, ask the men in your life. Do they see you as someone who's encouraging their leadership or you have a stiff-necked heart? A third um, characteristic, and I want us to open here, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And if one of you has a Bible, please read this passage with me. Titus 2, verses 1 to 5. Yeah, so I want us to see a few things here that are interesting. First, it says here, to be feminine means, verse 3, for example, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God, or how to be reverent, to have a reverent attitude. <clears throat> and I, I, even though Paul talks here to older women, I think this qualifications are some that w- would actually apply to all women everywhere. Teach them to have a reverent attitude. To have an attitude or a lifestyle that honors God. Someone pointed out that the reverent woman is not assertive, loud, and obnoxious. She's appropriate, meek, modest, and self-controlled, bringing honor to God and not attention to herself. This doesn't mean that she has a personality bypass, but she's brittled and under control. That's what it seems to be saying here, reverent. And by the way, in teaching, in talking about this uh, topic, about what does it mean to honor God through your lifestyle, there are different examples. For example, we have the, the example of the wife of Job. And in, in you see in the book of Job, at one point, Job is faced with a lot of trials and persecutions and, and suffering. And the attitude of his wife is not one that is, reverent to God. It's not one that is respectful to her husband. Actually, she comes to her husband, to Job, and you know what she says? Curse God so that you can die. In other ways, she says, I'm kind of sick and tired with you, Job. Uh, You've been around for a long time here with me, but it seems like you bring all this bad luck to me. So how about you curse God, and you can die so I can marry another fellow? It's a pretty dishonoring way of looking at it. And the, and Job looks at her and says, you're talking as a foolish woman. She's not a helper to him in that situation. She's someone who thinks she knows better. Instead of coming alongside and encouraging her husband, she does the opposite. Now, her example is totally different than the example of another woman in the Bible. Her name is Abigail. And I'm not sure how many of you know this. is in 1 Samuel chapter 25. I'll tell you a little bit of the story there. At one point, David is out and about with his troops. He's running for, from Saul, and he's taking care of uh, some people's uh, flocks and sheep and herds, and And one of this guy is Nabal. And Nabal has a bunch of sheep and a bunch of cattle, and, and David helps his herders to just take care of this, this flocks and, and all these things he has, all these animals. And when the time comes for uh, just the harvest and all that, David goes to Nabal and says, Hey, man, I helped you. Would you mind giving some things to me as well? And Nabal says, I didn't ask for your help. Go away. I don't want to just uh, entertain people that I don't care for. And he's, the Bible says he was a fool. He was a fool. He was full of himself, and he was very proud and arrogant and a jerk. And it's interesting, his wife finds out and David says, I'm going to go kill this guy. And Abigail knows that this, her husband, that next day probably is going to be gone. He's going to die because David doesn't deal with this type of disobedience or dishonoring. And Abigail, instead of going away from home for the day, wouldn't you think that this is the best time to get rid of the fool? We're like, you know what, I think I have to go shopping or visit my mother in another city I'll come home two two days from now, and he would be gone. David would be taking care of her husband. You know what she does? She goes to visit, to to meet David in between. And David was already coming to, to kill her husband. And she says, don't kill him. He's a fool. He's obnoxious. He's a jerk. He doesn't deserve anything. But for the sake of my home, and for the sake of the fact that he's still my husband, even though I disagree with him, and I know he's all this bad stuff, I still want to honor him and honor God. Would you mind receiving these gifts on our behalf? That shocks David. Like, what woman would do that? And again, if if you were in our world today, this would be a great opportunity for you to get rid of a fool and inherit some, some stuff from him. But she doesn't do that. She honors him. She has an honoring lifestyle. Again, it doesn't mean that you have a personality that is just a weak personality. It just means that you are a woman who wants to honor God. Sadly, our col- culture celebrates irreverent women and mocks the ones who want to be different than that. And the interesting here, it says they need to be honoring God. They must not slander others or to be heavy drinkers. This is an explanation of how you should be honoring God. Don't slander others. Don't engage into gossip. And slandering. By the way, did you know what gossip is? Gossip is speaking a truth with a person about another person when that person is not present. So you speak a truth with a person that is not part of the solution. That's gossip. Oh, I'm just telling truth. You are, but you're not telling the truth to the person that actually can do something about it. You are just spreading truth about a person so that that person can look bad. Slander, then... It's actually a little bit more than that. Slander is speaking evil or wrongly or lying about the person towards another person about a person who's not present. And that puts them in a very bad light. Gossip and slander, by the way, I find that especially in Romanian communities and Eastern European communities, this is pretty popular. Have you seen her? Did you see about that? Did you see what she wears? Did you hear what she did? Can you imagine? Wow, girl, I would never do that. Again, you're just saying, I'm just sharing truth. Don't do it. That's a way for you to feel good about yourself, by the way. When you start talking about someone else, it makes you feel like you're not so bad after all. But can you imagine that girl? Man. So he says, Pursue ho- reverency, Pursue Pursue holiness, as opposed to be slanderer or gossiper or heavy drinker. Interesting. Alcohol or any other type of drug or vice in which you find happiness or you find relief. Because sometimes you go through very hard circumstances, and I've been actually counseling women who run to alcohol or run to other things, whether drugs or other things, because they feel like they need an escape. Instead of going to the Lord they go to these things. And he says, here, don't do that. Now again, I think there's a deficiency in our culture for irreverence or for reverency, for, for people who live in an honoring way, especially girls. And there are two reasons that I, I think that we have a deficiency of reverent women in our culture. First, I think that there has been a lack of direction and protection from the fathers. That's played a big part in shaping womanhood in their daughters. Dads should be intentionally making sure that their girls are affirmed in their beauty, both inwardly and outwardly, and they're affectionate in an appropriate way with their daughters. I want my daughters to know that they're always safe next to me, that they're protected and cared for physically, emotionally, spiritually, that their dad thinks that they're the most beautiful girls in the world. They don't don't need the affirmation of some kind of jerk on the corner of a street. And sometimes we don't get that at home. And a a guy tells you at school, you're so beautiful, and you're immediately like, wow, nobody told me that. And what you don't know is that the guy doesn't really, actually cares so much about your beauty. He cares about the fact that you are sexual, or he wants to be sexual with you. In most situations, that's the case. Second, I think another reason why our culture promotes irreverent women is because many girls lack teaching and an example from mothers in their homes and spiritual mothers in the church. They're not examples like that. There are not many older women to teach younger women, this is how you need to live. This is how you need to dress. This is how you need to prioritize your life. And you might think about it. In your life, who do you have as a mentor of a godly woman? And I pray that it's your mom, but beyond your mom, do you have any other women that you look up to, that you can speak to, that you can, you can trust their counsel because you know that they're godly? They're not legalistic, but they're not too licentious. By the, by the way, modesty is a very important topic in the life of a Christian. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, Paul says, Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves or exhort women that they should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. What he's saying here is not that you shouldn't take care of yourself. No, you should, but you should not put too much emphasis on your outward appearance. Reverence is rooted in the fear of the Lord, and it, it, it issues forth in a modesty of dress and speech. Again, I want you to see that, in, at least in this Timothy passage, Paul encourages women to be beautiful and enhance their beauty by what they wear. This is not an excuse to not take care of yourself. He says that women should adorn themselves, but to do it in a respectable apparel. In an respectable way. Why? Because the outward apparel is a reflection of an inward, reverent disposition to the Lord or what's going on in your heart. So a woman should dress in a beautiful way, but not in a sensuous way. There's a great difference between being beautiful and being sensual. And by the way, when I see women that they are just dressed very modestly, I know that the problem is not so much the clothing, the problem is that the heart. Well, that's why, for example, in our church, we never speak on how long should be a dress or how exactly should you wear this or that. That's actually not so relevant. The relevant is the heart, because once you realize that Jesus should be the center and not you, you're not going to draw attention to yourself. And some, I'm talking even to women who sometimes go too far. For example, the Amish community, uh, Amish community sometimes go a little bit too far. They think, oh, I don't want to have any type of, um, you know, any type of reflection towards me. And again, that can go into legalism. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the idea that you need to dress in a way that is honoring to the Lord. That people don't remember just the parts that were not covered from your body. They remember who you are. And they don't like you because of your body. They like you for your character. They like you for who you are. Don't buy into this world's... um, just ideology. And it's interesting. We find it very weird that, that even though there's so much emphasis on your body being perfect, in the same time, they say, no, no, be proud of your body, whatever it is. And what I tell you is, like, hey, take care of your body and, and make sure that you honor the Lord through the way you dress, through the way you take care of your body. True womanhood cultivates true beauty. And a woman's value... And worth are not contingent upon what she looks like. As someone said, buying into that lie makes women have a look-at-me attitude rather than look-at-God attitude. A woman's worth is from God. Physical appearance is second to character and should not be ignored, but character is the key. Listen to Proverbs 31.30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but the woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And it goes on in Proverbs, excuse me, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. I don't have time to read through that. But it talks about a woman having a gentle and quiet spirit that pleases God. And you can only have that if you fear God. When you fear God, you won't fear what others think about you. And, and girls, women in this room, I want to emphasize this. Care more about what God thinks of you than caring more about what people think of you. That's actually very freeing, very liberating. Fearing the Lord makes her focus on what God prescribes for true beauty. And this kind of beauty that is inward is imperishable, and it's attractive. This kind of womanhood is strong and courageous, for it confronts the lies of Satan and a sinful heart and chooses godliness by the power of God's Spirit. Let me continue over the passage in Titus here. A few other characteristics. To be feminine entails to be a nurturer, Of your home, verses four and five. This older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes, to do good and to be submissive to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. God created women to be life bearers. Life bearers. Your bodies have been designed with the ability to mother meaning to receive, to carry, and to bear children. In fact, your bodies prepare themselves repeatedly to conceive and bear children. One of the ways in which a woman expresses her femininity is by gratefully embracing every stage of childbearing, receiving and nurturing each child as a gracious gift from God, if God gives you that blessing. Now again, in no way does this exclude single women. As Elizabeth Elliot, the famous missionary in South America, said in one of her books, she said, quote, A single woman may mother many children as a spiritual mother, similar to Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary in India. Amy offered her singleness transformed for the good of far more children than a natural mother may produce. All is received and made holy by the one to whom it is offered. So, Single and childless married women alike can express their femininity by nurturing other people's children. When you babysit for someone or serve in a nursery, you're giving expression to your femininity. By the way, that's another reason why in our nurseries and in churches, we have women serving on a regular basis there and not men. Can you imagine handing your child to a bunch of guys? That would be weird, wouldn't it? Like, what are those guys doing here? Not that the guys could not do it. It's just that that's not in their built. Women are built to be nurturers. Now, going back to this text and focusing on the ones who are married, it's interesting that the commandment from Paul to the older women is to teach the younger ones to know how to love their husbands and children. Interesting. That kind of goes against what we know traditionally, that women are the ones who say, the Bible, the tradition goes that, the saying goes that women know how to love, they just need how to learn how to respect their husbands. It comes natural for a woman to love her husband. That's what the saying goes. But it's interesting, Paul says here, no, I want the older women to teach the younger women how to love. Now what I think Paul is getting here at is that love defined as, from the culture is different than the biblical love. Because don't forget that even 2,000 years ago, most people had a distorted view of love. Their their view of love had been distorted by the mythology in their time. They all had all kinds of pagan stories and all kinds of mythological ideas. And by the way, in Greek mythology, you know that love was under the auspices of a god called Eros. Remember that? And his Roman counterpart is Cupid. From Valentine's Day? Sometimes depicted as an infant or a young man. And Eros is the culprit behind many mythological love stories in the ancient Greece. Now what's interesting about Eros or Cupid is this, that he is depicted, what? With an arrow in his hand. And he throws this arrow where? Or bow in his hand. And he throws the arrow in what? In a heart. And the, bow, the, the arrow goes through it. Remember that? Classic picture. Now, this image is very important because it tells us much about what the definition of love was in those ancient times and what I think the definition of love is even today. Love was defined as a random, overwhelming, uncontrollable, sensual force. It's a random thing that happens from nowhere. Hence the arrow. Cupid strikes you when he wants to. You don't choose who you fall in love with. Have you heard that phrase? It just gets to you. He's somewhere behind the clouds, and bam, hits you with his arrow and goes right through your heart. We also believe in this overwhelming, uncontrollable force. It, it, we say things like, "This thing is bigger than both of us." We don't just choose who we fall in love with, do we? The heart wants what it wants. It's also essential because you feel a physical attraction to the other person. That's why people say, phrases like, I'm not sure if I love him anymore. Or um, we fell out of love. Or I fell in love with someone I, should fall in, I shouldn't fall in love with. And by the way, if you fell out of love or in love with the wrong person, you have to climb out of it. That's why Paul is saying here to Titus, teach the younger women to love their husbands, not according to the definition of the world. Love is not what you think it means. Love has to be defined biblically. Love in the Bible is not defined by being random or uncontrollable and overwhelming and sensual force. Nothing like that. First Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast it is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoicing with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Author and theologian vodi Balcom has really a good definition on this. He says, Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. Let me repeat that. Love is act in an act of the will something that I desire I want to do and I actually put my mind to do it it's not about what I feel it's an act of the will accompanied by emotion when I, once I choose what I want to do emotions will follow that leads to action on behalf of its sub-object leads to action on behalf of its object so if I tell I love my wife my emotions will follow and I'm actually going to do something about it in a way that serves her. Love is an act of the will. This is the key phrase, meaning it's a conscience choice we make to love others. In this case, women to love their husbands and their kids, not because they deserve it or because they feel it, the women feel it, but because you choose to do it because God commends it to you. There are many times, and I want to tell you, especially for the ones who are not married yet, you're going to feel many, many times, times when you are not, I'm not sure if I emotionally feel like I love my spouse right now. Probably you're frustrated with them, probably you had a bad day, bad week, but nevertheless, biblically speaking, you are called to love them. It's not about what you feel in that moment. Remember, even Jesus at one point, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he feels that he doesn't want to do what he's supposed to be doing. He struggles with that in his inhumanity. He is wondering, Can I, is there any other way, Lord, to not go through the cross? But at one point he says, not my will, but what? Your will, Lord. Why? Because in his human nature, as I said, he couldn't go through it. It was hard. But he had to with the help of the Holy Spirit. And he did it. Why did he do it? Because he loved us. And remember that he loved us while we were were still sinners. We did not love him. Nevertheless, he loved us. Ladies, you're called to learn how to love biblically your husband and your kids and not let yourself be influenced by the world. Prioritize your home. Your husband and your children over everything else. Why? Because that's God designed for you. That doesn't mean, by the way, let me say this it doesn't mean you shouldn't work outside of the home or not have a high profile job or even high profile leadership. But all of these things should be done with the understanding and commitment that your home has priority over all things. That's what I mean when I said make sure that you make priority of your home, your nurture. And by the way, that goes both ways. One wise man told me one time that no matter how important my job is or my position in society, there's always someone to take my place. Even if I was the President of the United States, the pastor of a multi-mega church, there's also always someone to take my place. But there's one place that that I'm not replaceable, and that is to be a father to my children and a husband to my wife. I need to prioritize that. Now what happens for, for a lot of you who are having probably desires to have a high career or a great career in, in different areas, I want to encourage you to, to pursue those. But when the Lord blesses you with a home, with, with a husband and, a, and kids, to maybe think through how should you prioritize your home. And it might be at times that you want to give up for a time your career so that you can take care of your kids. I remember there's this sweet couple in our church. She is Chinese. Actually, she's the only only child of her parents. And if you know anything about Chinese families, they're pretty serious about education. The tiger mom, you've heard of that? Her mom and her dad, man, were on her. And, And she did really well. She became a doctor. and She was a very known doctor in our area. Her husband is a lawyer. And a few years ago, she came to me because... She just had their third child, and she was crying, and she said, she was saying, you know, my parents wanted me to be the successful doctor all my life, and I wanted this with everything in me, and here I am having my third child, and they're all, they were all under three, under five, excuse me, and she says, I I feel like this is a time when I need to, to invest in them, and instead, I'm just working a lot of hours so that I can pay someone else to take care of my children. I feel this urgency to just quit my job, and I don't know what to do. And she heard one of my sermons, and she said, I I feel like this is what the Lord calls me to do, but I don't know how to tell it to my parents. Her parents were not even Christians. But she prayed and prayed, and after a few months, she she said, you know what, I'm going to quit my job. She found a part-time job where she can just work a few hours a week to still keep her license. But now she's fully engaged with her kids, her husband as well. And she says she came to me not long ago, and she says, I don't regret not even a second of it. So if you're a young girl here and you don't know, what should I do? You know, I don't know if I'm going to get married when I'm 18 or 20 or 25. It's true. So you should pursue excellence. You should continue to pursue being good in your career, whatever you want to do. But, but remember that when, if God blesses you with a husband, with a home, with kids remember this verse what good is it for someone to gain the whole world but to lose their soul i'm not saying that you're going to lose your soul but probably you're going to lose a lot of time and a lot of memories that you can have with your kids even though probably you won't have the same amount of income or the same lifestyle. But you better, you'd rather live in a smaller home with maybe small income and less resources, but be happy and be having the satisfaction that you did everything you could to, to fulfill your role as a mother, as a wife, than to feel like you had all these riches and then to regret once the kids are out of your home, what if I could have done this or that? That's my encouragement to you. Again, I'm not saying that you need to you know, be cooking all day long or learning these things. There's so many ways in which you can take care of the home. There's so many options. I don't think that there's a standard there. Yes, you have Proverbs 31 that presents this ideal woman, but let's be honest, most women never get to be like that. And I don't think that it's right for for us to ever desire for a woman to be Proverbs 31 because that woman does a ton of things. What I call you to do is not to be a Proverbs 31 woman, even though in Probably there are some women out there in the ideal world that are like that. What I'm calling you to be is think about the biblical mandate here in in the book of Titus and 1 Peter. Pursue the Lord. Fear Him. Remember that femininity is a gift from the Lord. Remember that you should pursue modesty. Remember that you should have a biblical understanding of love. And remember to, to prioritize the call for your life if you get married, to be a wife, to be a mother. And if you're not married, to encourage guys and nurture and encourage them to lead. That's my heart for you. And if you're a guy here, I want to tell you something. If you're a single guy and you heard this message, I pray that you ask the Lord to point you to a godly woman that loves Him and wants to honor Him and you will not look for the things that are based on external beauty and trivial criteria. Pursue a woman that wants to honor God and that has this qualification that I described today. If you're a husband, continue to pray for your wife and serve her in a way that is Christ-like. Whether she resembles these qualities or not, in any case, you're responsible to equip your wife and teach her God's Word and lead your family in bringing them to fellowship with other believers and to encourage your wife to hang out with godly friends and godly women who can encourage her to grow in godliness. And if you become a father of a a young woman, I want to encourage you to pray about how you can be Christ for them in their lives, how to love on them, As Christ loved the church. Guys, this week I presented to you a bunch of qualifications for men and women. And I prayed that as you look back to what you took notes on, and by the way, I only scratched the surface on a lot of these topics. On this topic specifically, you probably can can go more into depth, and you can find more and more and more qualities. As I said, I I just mentioned a few books. Nancy Lee DeMoss is is a good book. I think it's called Biblical Womanhood in the Home. Um, there is another one, Carolyn Mahaney, Feminine Appeal, some good books that you can find. Uh, Nancy Lee DeMoss with Dana Grish, I think they wrote the book called Ten uh, Lies Women Believe, or Lies That Women Believe, I think is the reprinted edition. There's also one for younger ones of you, Ten, Ten Lies Young Women Believe. Again, I pray that you would take notes on this. Guys, I pray that you would pray about what you heard this week. God has high standards for us. And we have, as leaders, high standards for you and for ourselves. We want to be different in the world. But I want to tell you this. The only way you can be different from the world, the only way you can achieve what Christ wants us to achieve is only through Christ and the power of the gospel. And I want to encourage you, if you feel convicted this, this week that you are you're a sinner. You feel like, man, I, I, I don't meet those qualifications that this guy was telling me about. I'm really falling short of a lot of them. Whether you are a believer or not, I pray that you get on your knees at one point, either tonight or tomorrow, this next few days, and ask God to help you, to give you grace, and to give you a motivation to be different, to be a, a light in this world of darkness. And by the way, when you start living like Christ, people will see that. They're going to come to you and say, why are you different? Why are you not emphasizing so much on your external beauty and you're talking about character? Why aren't you dressing like this and dressing like that? Why, why are you always bringing up verses and, and talk about how we should not gossip and slander? Why are you never actually engaging gossip with us in slander? Why, why do you always kind of go away when you hear us talking about that? Because you, you can tell them, because I love Christ. I love Jesus, and I want you to love Him too. And also because what we're doing is destructive. By the way, this is not just optional. What I'm telling you is not like, hey, it would be great for you to be like this. It would be nice for you to be like this. And how about you, you asking God to be like this? No, here's the thing. If you, you're not like this, then you're going to have a problem with the Lord. If you're a believer, you're going to respond to Him for all the gifts He's given you. And you won't be rewarded Accordingly, you won't find the same rewards as someone else who does it. Again, I'm not talking about that you're going to lose some salvation here. I'm talking about the fact that you're not going to fulfill God's plan for your life. And, and sometimes I even wonder if you're not fulfilling those plans for, your, for God's, God's plans for your life, I wonder, do you even know Christ? Do you even pursue Christ? So if you're not fulfilling what God tells you to fulfill and you're going in the other direction, I wonder, do you know Christ? So this is not optional. This is serious. So I'm going to pray for us tonight and then after a song, I'm going to just give you guys an opportunity. If you want prayer and you feel like you want someone to pray with you for a decision you made this week, whether it's... For the first time in your life, you you receive Christ this week. You want to give your life to Christ. We're going to have a time for that. We don't want to manipulate you emotionally. We we don't want you to just show up because someone wants you to see you showing up. We really want to pray for you. And we want to give an opportunity to come to know the Lord. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to have our worship team come up here and then I'll, I'll come back again and just invite you to pray, whoever needs prayer. Let me pray. Father... I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for just the qualifications that you put in your scriptures for women, godly women. And I pray, Lord, that every woman in this room, every girl, that they would pursue you, Lord, with everything they have. We pray, Lord, that they would look more to what you require of us than the world around us. I pray, Lord, that they will find their identity, their approval in you. I pray, Lord, that you remind them they are children of yours, Lord, that they are daughters of the Almighty God, that they are princesses of the Almighty King. I pray that you remind them of this. I pray, Lord, that you remind them that you gave your Son for them, that you love them so much, that you gave your only begotten Son for them. And I pray that they are always, always, just find rest and who they are in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.